Welcome to the Bloodsucking Feminists, your number one Scottish Kiwi podcast focused on the three Fs. Fangs, feminism and fangirling. I'm Catherine. And I'm Keely. And you're listening to episode four, Blood is the Drug, or Only Lovers Left Alive, directed by Jim Jamush. A word of warning, as always, spoilers abound for everything we will be discussing tonight, mainly Only Lovers Left Alive, as directed by Jim Jamush. There will also be much Tom Hiddleston fangirling, and also some trigger warnings ahead too for traditional vampire violence, blood, an acid bath, and anything else. Hipsters. Hipsters and cultural appropriation. So, we've finally escaped it. We've finally escaped pre-20th century literature. Hooray. We've decided to sort of go a non-linear route with the next few months with everything we're exploring. Yeah, pretty and much. So if you have any suggestions, yeah. send some stuff our way. And we're very interested in Tom Hiddleston. See, it's begun already. Let's be honest, the reason that I would say the larger film going public wanted to see this film was, I would say, about 80% Tom Hiddleston based. Because Jim Jarmusch is a well-loved filmmaker, but he's not on the scale of a Marvel movie. He's a, a man with indie sensibilities through and through. He made Dead Man, which was the Johnny Depp film, which is described as being an acid western. He made Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, where Forrest Whitaker is a samurai assassin for the mob. But Only Lovers Left Alive is by far and away the most mainstream effort he's ever made. Not just because of the casting, because of the sensibility of it. This is the tail end of the 21st century vampire craze, but I think it's the beginning of the, the vampire resurgence. Because these things come in cycles. Vampires never die, they just go into their coffin and sleep for a while. Or in this case, they go to their really, really amazing couches. Or um, their beat-up house in Detroit. It's a very Only visual... Only Lovers Left Alive is... It's a very beautifully visual movie. Which you expect with a Jarmish. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, we talk a lot about the, the male gaze in film, and then the, the female gaze. But the thing that's getting gazed upon sexually is the instruments. Oh, yeah. There's so... A, there's a scene where Tilda Swinton breasts and naked um, Tom Hiddleston just curved slightly enough you can't see anything. You know, the traditional we can't show that part posing. It's more to show that they're not breathing and not moving than they are anything naked. Which I think is a very interesting choice because nudity in these films are often extremely sexualized. but as I was saying before, it's the instruments rather than any of the naked bodies of the characters. Well, except for Tom Hiddleston walking around shirtless all the time. But again, it's not that traditional male gaze. Whether it's just part of the nature of the thing, or did it feel weird doing that to Tilda Swinton, or or, or if it's just part of the aesthetic? I think it's an aesthetic decision. Yeah, One, of because course I, don't is, think Tal- I don't think Tilda Swinton would have given a shit, because yeah. it's Tilda Swinton. Yeah. But here, they're very much romantic figures, but it's subverted in an interesting manner. So the lead, leading pair, the lovers of Only Lovers Left Alive, are called Adam and Eve. <laughs> yeah. And they are married, have been so for centuries. Did they put a number on it? A couple of them. Didn't they say something like their third wedding or something? And that was in the beginning of photography? They were together around the, the Elizabethan era, at least. But they've spent much time apart and they're currently in an apart state. Adam is currently residing in Detroit and Eve's in Tangier. They have a what is led to be a psychic connection of sorts, 
But when they want to talk, they go on FaceTime like everyone else. Yeah, he hooks up his really weird system that he's been messing with and she just whips out her iPhone. So clearly someone's adapting to technology differently. Yes, Adam basically spends all of his days in his dilapidated house in Detroit collecting very rare and old instruments which are brought to him by his... Not really familiar, he's kind of like his roadie. Yeah, this dude he pays. This guy he pays and has a confidentiality agreement who's played by Anton Yelchin, who is possibly a little bit in love with him and just does all of this random shit for him like i need you to go get me a bullet made of wood okay i can do that no problem dude whips out his notepad and just starts making a list of the possible woods that he's suggesting yeah wooden bullet it's it's that kind of mood so eve calls up adam and notices that he's kind of depressed he's become withdrawn and is talking about how the zombies of the world zombies are humans have ruined everything and they're on the way to poisoning the earth and they don't even know it so eve decides to pay a visit to him it's really hard to describe this doesn't really have a plot i mean it's, we're talking about the plot we're just talking about everything that happens in the movie it's a two-hour long movie but it, it goes at a very to use our favorite phrase languorous pace yes um the blurb itself gives a plot as being their debauched Ill- is soon interrupted by the wild and uncontrollable younger sister Ava. That's like a really, really small part. She's just there to give them a motivation to run away from yet another problem. This is a she's moment- here for I would say she's not there for no longer than half an hour. This is a two-hour-long movie. Yep. This is a moment of existence in the long life of two people who aren't living. And it's deliberately at that pace with that lack of action to show that they're doing things, so- but not doing things. They have all the time in the world to absorb the centuries of world culture. When Eve is packing up her things to go to Detroit, she takes lots of books in various different languages. And the way that she reads them, she sort of strokes every page and excitedly devours everything on on them, no matter what language they're in. And she takes along, in one suitcase, she has a copy of Don Quixote next to Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. So she is certainly appealing more to the continually evolving pop culture of the time than Adam is. For Adam, I don't think it got any better after about 1970s. And even then, it's only begrudgingly. They each seem to have an addiction to a certain aspect of human culture. Hers is literature, his is music. And of course they have an addiction to blood. Yeah. And it's really painted in very drug-like terms here. So when they take their sherry glass of blood, they slowly drink it as if they're tasting some fine wine, and then fall back in a hallucinogenic haze with grins on their face and blood covering their fangs. And the the camera spins out. Yeah, it's the, I'm so high right now, um, (laughs) moment. Just really, really classy. And they refer but to it's it also as the, like um, the good stuff. That's yeah. what it is. It's the good stuff. So there is a very clear distinction between these kinds of blood. One of the fears that Adam has is contamination, which is why he gets all of his blood from a blood bank, where he handsomely bribes Jeffrey Wright. You may know him as BT from The Hunger Games. Or Belize from Angels in America. This modern audience would be BT from The Hunger Games. <laughs> but that also highlights another problem with the film we'll get to in a second. But in terms of the blood... There's also the convenience factor because Adam and Eve do not go out hunting because that's not considered safe in the modern day. The one who does go out hunting or has less hang-ups about that is Eva. And Eva she just gets a tummy ache. Yeah, she is. Consi- she's sort of painted as the the wild child. She comes in from Los Angeles, which Adam, like every hipster you know, declares to be the the home of all the zombies. 
she wants to go out partying and drink all the good stuff and watch YouTube clips and hang around in cool clubs and then eat guys. Because they're so cute. Well, it is Anton Yelchin. He's pretty adorable. Yeah, he's not really recognisable in this, though. It's fantastic. No, like- everyone in this film has really sort of ratty long hair. Yeah, and the vampires themselves, the three of them, well, four of them, they are allergic to combs. Their hair is just big and it's all very styled in a very particular way. And it really marks them out as not like the rest of us. Anton Yelchin's hair is, you know, that guy, that roadie guy. So it's very traditional for the type of thing. But there's something really almost off about the way that the other three are. Yeah, well, Eva dresses as kind of a typical party girl. Eve's is a little more of a vintage styling. She has this sort of fabulous white leather jacket, which only she could wear and not get blood on, of course. Well, Adam's a rock star. There's a what era of rock star for... The music he plays it feels reminiscent of the sort of Jimi Hendrix Doors era of the 60s. Well, he did see all these people play live on YouTube. <laughs> That's probably the other, another reason why um, he liked Ian so much was because, well, he didn't ask questions beyond. Oh, okay. Because basically there are lots of fanboys of Adams that keep trying to turn up at his house looking for him. And he just can't stand all of this attention. And oh, why do people keep paying attention to him? It's so hard. Because not only does he hate humans, he hates what they have turned his beloved culture into. I feel like culture should have giant air quotes around it. Because <laughs> when we talk, when we make like a lot of hipster jokes. But Adam's attitude towards everything is very much rooted in the idea of a rose-tinted view of the past. Which, let's be honest, you can really only get when you are a cisgender, heterosexual, white dude. Dead or undead. Especially with with money. And it's suggested that they're living comfortably. Like, they have money when they need it. Yeah, I mean, look at the wads of cash Adam gives Ian all the time. Like, even Ian is like, dude, this is way too much. Okay. (laughs) And Eva shows that they have multiple passports and multiple credit cards. And they can afford to fly first class out that night. It's that level of money. That really highlights the huge discrepancies between the life that Adam is able to live and the life that everyone else in Detroit is currently living. Yeah. Because this is 21st century Detroit. It is a city of mass poverty, mass unemployment, and the population, according to the most recent demographic numbers, is 80% black. Yes. And he's Where not- the black people in this movie are in the hospital. They're not in the clubs that he chooses to go to. They're not the fans of his music. And when you look at the wall that he has in his house, which is clearly his great cultural influences, there are pe- people of colour on that wall, but they are greatly outnumbered by white men. Yeah, I think, at first glance, I saw, like, one woman. There's probably more of them, but only one that really stood out. I think I saw Louis Armstrong on the wall, but I would have to double-check. But you see people like Einstein and Tesla. Poe. Poe's on there. That very distinctive Poe photograph. Yeah, for a man who's whose sensibilities are so rooted in this idea that the mainstream is terrible. He has really mainstream tastes and influences. Well, here's the thing. He doesn't think um, cis-hit white guys is mainstream. He doesn't see that. I guess when you're undead. (laughs) Well, well, I mean, it's more like he doesn't see that as anything beyond his normal. He's seeing that as his default, like so many do. That does open up the question of whether or not the film is aware of this. Because I couldn't entirely make up my mind. There are moments where Eve really does just tell Luke snap out of it. At the end where she's booking tickets for them to escape after Ian, Anton Yelchin's character, has had to be thrown into an acid bath because he's been eaten. She says that they want, they'll be flying without luggage. And he says, well, how will I bring my 
my instruments and she says something to the effect of there are beautiful things all around the world that you'll one day own or find so she's basically telling him look you need to drop the attachment to these things and it's all about attachment to things not people yeah these it's even the one connection to the the things he's attached to and he just doesn't seem to register that the only people he's attached to are dead and he's got a very romanticized view of them after all that time in the past these people were so much better than these people of today and he's completely looking at them with rose-tinted um, sunglasses. He's not thinking ill of the dead. Which makes you wonder what would happen in 50 years' time. Would he be looking back on the music of... Miley Cyrus? Of 20, <laughs> the music of 2013 and going, oh, those were the days. Because his taste in music does... Well, we, we get hints of it with some of the records that they play. But it's a reasonably eclectic mix. They are certainly absorbing a good selection of things. You see that with Eve's collection of books. Yes, and she lives in a house in a in a place in Tangier, which is just piles and piles of books. They line the staircase; it looks beautiful. Whereas with Adam, the few books that he does own are just sort of carelessly tossed around the room. And everything he complains about the way that the the zombies put every everything together, all their technology together, and yet he's doing the exact same thing. His wires. Yeah, are if everywhere. you look at his um, the way that he listens to music, or the way that he talks to Eva. He's deliberately set up a FaceTime way that is... It's it's like those people who convert everything back onto video. Because, yeah. oh, video feels more authentic or something like that. No, it's just fuzzier, okay? There's nothing worth watching there. Yeah, he's he's complaining about the humans doing the same things that he does. It's just cool and okay when he does it. Yeah, he has descended into a form of self-parody, but I don't think he realises that, whereas I think Eve has, but doesn't entirely have the heart to tell him. Yeah. Because there is real love there. I mean, these two have chemistry. Yeah, and she's obviously very concerned at the idea that he is trying to take his own life. Or at least thinking about it. Because she finds the gun with the wooden bullet. And she immediately calls him out on this. He's very much And ultimately, he does leave with her. He's very much the follower of this relationship. And I think part of that comes down to what we've discussed earlier... Well, we discussed earlier before this recording um, the age gap, and which is a very yeah. interesting thing because, as we know, there's been a, there's been a lot of talk about the age gap between uh, the leading men in uh, movies, particularly action movies, and the um, love interests. Sometimes it's like ten, sometimes it's what thirty years between the male and the female, with the male being older. Well, I think this came up recently because the new. Mission Impossible movie, Tom Cruise is now in his 50s, and Rebecca Ferguson, who plays his love interest, I believe she's my age. I believe she's 25. Yeah, well, isn't the the latest rumour about his new girlfriend being his assistant, and she's 22? Yes. Rebecca Ferguson's 31, but even then, that's still a 22-year age gap. And then, of course, there's the, you know, the Every time Woody Allen makes a movie. Ew. Yeah. Why do you have to say his name? I'm sorry. I'll I'll we're going to have to talk about Polanski later. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's coming soon, guys. Sorry. We'll make it worth your while. It's okay. There'll be music. But here, it's such a fascinating. Here, it's such a fascinating example because in universe and out universe, the woman is older. She's wiser. She's more responsible. She's more interesting. I would argue, and she's the one that has to tell the man in a relationship, "Look, you need to get your shit together." Mm-hmm. Darling. So, out of universe, Tilda Swinton's about 20 years older than Tom Hiddleston? She's exactly 20 years older. Yep, not that she looks it. <laughs> because she is a vampire. Well, no, we decided, because she's from the Highlands, she's what She's what again? Well, Sex? she's a lean and she. She's a lean and she. That would explain it, she's sucking the life out of all the directors and stuff. Go back to our Carmilla episode for more information. <laughs> and then, of course, in universe, she is centuries older, and so she's at a she very. Has, she has lived space. more of a life. Yeah, she's had a she's 
at a very different stage of her life. And she's there's not much actually in here about a vampire mythology, so we have no idea except that we know that they you have to be turned, so it's not a case of you're born this way or anything. But so she and also being twenty years older physically, she would have had a very different she's had a very different human life, plus she had as a role as a woman in a previous time in history. I think she's had time to, to loosen up a little bit. Yeah. She's less concerned with the ins and outs of the quote-unquote zombie life. She doesn't see it as something really to necessarily look down on. I think there's certainly a, a slightly condescending element there. There's certainly pity. Yeah, but she's... But she's not actively resenting them. Yeah, they're cute. They make things she appreciates, and she appreciates them for that, but she doesn't appreciate them as anything other than the creators and the the source of food. She appreciates what they do, not what they are. Whereas, and I think that's the main contrast between the two. Whereas Adam doesn't even appreciate what they do anymore now. He just and whines doesn't about see this generation. The irony. Yeah, he just whines about this generation that needs to get off his lawn. <laughs> and he doesn't see the irony in complaining about the way that they sort of cannibalize one another while he is appropriating everything that they do. Not to mention he... As a white guy in Detroit. Yeah, not to mention that as a vampire, his role is to consume humans. <laughs> there is that, obviously, as well. He is the uh, point Jim Jarmusch... is just going over Sorry. his head. Jim Jarmusch had a really interesting quote, which I think is really exemplifies this film and also Jarmusch's career in general, and it's related to appropriation, so I'm just going to say it here. Sure. Nothing is original. Steal from anywhere that resonates with inspiration or fuels your imagination. Authenticity is invaluable. Originality is non-existent. And don't bother concealing your thievery. Celebrate it if you feel like it. So one of the things that Jarmusch is known for is this level of, that kind of cross-level appropriation. So in his film Dead Man, which is a western, there's the character Johnny Depp plays, whose name is William Blake, not that William Blake, who goes out west to find a job is sort of kicked out without getting a job, gets shot, and spends the rest of the film slowly dying in the care of this Native American character who is deliberately created to subvert the expectations that you have about Native Americans in Western films. Mm -hmm. So he is by far and away the smartest person in the film. He genuinely thinks that this Blake is the William Blake, (laughs) because it just doesn't cross his mind that the two people would have the same name. It's a really fascinating film, actually, if you're interested it's it's a it's a film where Johnny Depp is bearable. It features a really fascinating Native American character, and it features a surprisingly creepy villain who eats people. And you know how I feel about my villains who eat people. They're sexy. <laughs> oh, he's played by Lance Henriksen in this one, so he's definitely not sexy. Jared no. Harris is in it. Well, he's good looking. That's a different topic. Um, and the other one of the other instances of this with Jarmusch is a film called Ghost Dog: Way of the Samurai, where Forrest Whitaker plays a samurai. Hitman for the mob. Because why not? So this movie is basically, not only is it a samurai movie, it is a mob m- movie. A mafia movie, it is a fascinating exploration of loneliness and solitude, and it features a hip-hop soundtrack, because of course. Yeah, music is definitely a big part of Only Lovers Left Alive. Oh yeah. The appreciation of music, the dislike of music... The relationships that people build based on music. One of the reasons that Ian, Anton Yelchin's character, continues to stick around is because he's a big fan of Adam's music. And Adam doesn't seem to get that at all. He generally doesn't seem to understand the pleasures of creating something that makes other people happy. There's There's a selfish element there to it. 
he creates for the sake of creating. He doesn't care about getting credit. That's why he even gave it gave some of his work to famous music writers. Uh, was it Tchaikovsky? No. He does give it around to other composers. I can't remember which one. For yeah, but there is a definite statement of that yeah. he wrote a string quintet thing or something like that that he gave to some composer. Yeah, but also the the names that they pick for one another during these times. So when Adam goes into the hospital to pick up his blood supply, he wears a badge saying Dr. Faust. <laughs> and and the, when the doctor in Eva's, there is Dr. Watson, by the way. Yes, and when Eva is, Eve, I should say, is booking tickets for one of their flights, her passport says Daisy Buchanan. Yes. And then, of course, there's Christopher Marlowe. That Christopher Marlowe. Yeah, and as yes, opposed to that William Blake. And yes, he did write Shakespeare's plays. Yeah, it's sort of, you know, hinted at, because um, he says, you know, if only he'd known Adam when he was writing Hamlet. So oh, the a, Hamlet thing That so sort of sums up Adam, doesn't it? <laughs> Has Hiddleston played Hamlet? He's played Coriolanus. Hamlet, I know... Well, according to his Wikipedia page, he hasn't. See, we did a real research uh, right here. It might be his dream... No, he, that, Hamlet is amongst the uh, roles I don't think he's played. He'll get there. He'll get there. He'll get there. There is one element of this film that I find really interesting with the the vampire mythos, which is, there isn't a single mention of religious imagery or text in this story. The religion is the religion of music and culture. Yeah, the creations of man are his religion, which is kind of ironic because he seems to hate those zombies for even doing it. But, you know, there's no mention of God, no, no crosses, no churches. What we get instead are long night tours of the crumbling, abandoned, semi-abandoned city of Detroit. Yeah, there's no religion. Garlic is briefly mentioned as something they're not really allergic to, like an old wives' tale. Mm-hmm. The sun is definitely a big thing, because they make a big deal about going and tucking in for the, the day. They have to have night flights arriving in and out. But you don't necessarily have to be invited into the house, but it's just considered good manners. Good manners, but also bad luck if you don't get invited in. Yeah, so there's an element of superstition still there. Yeah, and she believes she seems to believe these superstitions more than him. Because he's that a man of science. But that might be tied to her age as well. Because Ava's response to all this is sort of a snort of derision, and I can't believe you still believe all that crap. Adam is very much the man of science, the man of logic and reason. Or at least he thinks he's that guy. He thinks a lot about himself. Yeah, because, I mean, he talks. he's built a lot of technological things. He sort of seems to worship at the foot of Tesla. Of course. And he talks a lot about, in, they talk a lot about his um, love of science and the way humans hate science. And I was like, oh, come on. It's, again, that worshipping what the humans have created, but not the, the people themselves. Or at least the, the old humans he'll, he's okay with, but not the modern ones. Like, and defining them on very black and white terms. There is only the bad humans doing bad things. You don't really get to see the sort of... The nuances of history. You know, because history is basically how you see it, or it's written by the victors. And the victors <laughs> had Shakespeare writing those plays and not Marlowe. Can I just say how much I really hate the Shakespeare Truffer movement? <laughs> that is some that is some classist bullshit right there. Oh, Shakespeare couldn't have written his plays because he didn't have a university education. Screw you. So I mentioned earlier about the the lack of a very obvious vampire mythology. I mean, there's the basics there. They they drink blood. They're obviously immortal, 
and I don't like the sunlight, which is one of the more recent developments, and I say recent, referring to Nosferatu. <laughs> um, the thing that's interesting is the gloves, which is... So for those of you who haven't seen the film or somehow didn't notice this, um, whenever they leave the house, they wear gloves, and they make a big deal of taking the gloves off of each other. There's an intimate act between the two of them, Eva, Eve and Adam, not Ava and Adam, where they take off each other's gloves, and it's a very romantic and sexual element. And then Ava comes along and, you know, tries to get Adam to take off her gloves, and it's like, back off. And that's sort of Eva's role. She's there to try and worm her, she's trying to worm her way between the two of them. She's of a different generation, she's there to cause trouble, she's, she's a catalyst for this, for their, for this stage of their lives forcing them to move elsewhere. She's, she's there just trying to live as well, no yeah. pun intended, because she hasn't got to that stage in her life, which I feel there, there must be the, the roller coaster element of it. Which, this is the greatest thing I ever have, all the time in the world to do everything I want. Oh, this sucks, I'm so lonely, and solitude, and humans suck, and then back to, hey, actually, this is pretty decent. She's enjoying her unlife. She lacks the maturity that um, Eve and Adam think they have, but she, well, she definitely lacks their restraint. Whether that actually ties into maturity is something even Adam would probably argue about with me. Because for all their age, they're still very immature in the way that they handle things, well, they treat things in the world around them. And I say that as a grown woman of 28. <laughs> they're like young people who don't want to pop their bubble around them and see the, the world as it actually is. You know, he sees the zombies and all the terrible things that human do, humans do, but not the goodness. The way pe- the people who are trying to change, change themselves and the world. It's all bad. Nobody's creating anything good. Nobody's doing anything good. Humans all suck. Ava is just, she actually is interacting. She is doing some appreciation. Okay, she, she as I said, she lacks a lot of restraint and ends up eating poor Ian and ends up with a very bad tummy ache. <laughs> Which is probably one of the funnier moments in the film for me, that she's like, ugh, and gets angry when they kick her out. But in doing so, she sort of reveals the zombie nature of Adam and Eve. She refers to them as pretentious snobs, I believe, when she's kicked out of the house. Yeah. But their reaction, there is no grief. And it really shows that the relationship between Ian and Adam was very one-sided. Ian was very enamoured of Adam, whether you can take it in a romantic or sexual sense, or if he's just that fanboy... Or if, even just as the older brother, I could definitely see it argued as it, he was seeing this guy as the cool older brother he never had. Cause, and he's, you know, he's rushing around to please his brother. He wants everyone to know how awesome his brother is. But when Ian dies, Adam just sort of sits there and goes, Ooh. He sits on the couch next to him, but is more concerned with the guitar that Ava has broken. That pretty much sums it up. Again, the importance of what they're creating and not the people doing the creating. And there's almost a playful flirtation between Adam and Eve as they're sitting next to this body and go, oh, well, we'd better get rid of them. You got, <laughs> you got carpet? carpet. <laughs> they're like, okay, we can't go there. And they toss them <laughs> into the acid in the ruins of one of the old production buildings. Um, was it the, the place that they used to build cars or something? I think so. There is a moment where he mentions that this was the city his favorite car ever was built in. It's on one of their tours around Detroit. It's actually, now that I remember... In that thing, we see when they're about to drop off the body, literally. Is it coyotes that are in the building? I think so. 
And that's the big thing of um, Eve, especially. Every time she sees a creature or something, she names it scientifically. Every song that's referenced or every instrument she finds, well, she can name the exact year that it's from. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is like a, a mystical power of hers or if it's just a... She's been around that long and she knows everything. I think it's just that, because even though there are obvious supernatural elements here, most of it's the the mythos and the way that they act is relatively grounded. Like, they don't fly, they don't turn into animals. They do have super speed. They do, but it's not comically so. I mean, it's... It, I don't want to say it feels realistic, but there's an element to it that feels grounded. They don't even mention the word vampire once in this entire film. Yeah. It's not vampire speed, speed mode like in um, True Blood. It's just... Wham! You just realise that his arm has moved to snatch the thing. And Ian's like... It actually looks pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, and Ian's just like, Whoa, ninja! And it, so by, she she cares more about the animals that she's seeing, or the mushrooms, the toadstools that have come out out of season, than the people in the world. Yeah, she still has a level of... I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily respect, but there's an understanding there, but it's not something that she's going to, to concern herself with too much. It's not anything... That any of them really are, except for Marlowe and the, the guy he's teaching to read. Yeah. He's the only one who seems to have any sort of attachment to humanity. Well, Ava, possibly, but we don't see enough of her in interactions other than her with Ian, and she, that doesn't end well at all. But there's obviously a very long and deep relationship between the two guys. Whether it's, again, romantic or sexual or just, uh, you know, parent-child, master student it's not really touched upon they sort of make a reference to um christopher Barlow having some sort of history with a male partner but it's a very just a slip in the background type of thing the only sort of sexuality in this movie is between well adam and eve and then the young lovers they attack at the end everything else is the sexuality and sensuality of music and culture ava and ian it's just food Possibly with that underlying sexual element that you see in vampire feeding, but it's not actually... And then her interrupting Adam and Eve. At some point, it's like parent-child. You know, she's interrupting the parents in their bedroom as they're trying to sleep, going, what can we do? What can you do? It's boring. Can we do something today? And then she's, like, very blatantly coming after Adam. You know, the, the little sister playing with her big sister's boyfriend, or trying to, that trope. It's almost childlike, even the interaction she has with Ian. The way that they dance, the way they sort of sit on the couch together. And then, yeah, and then, you know, she wakes up, it's like, oh, I ate too much, I have a tummy ache. Like, she's eaten too much cake and she's been told not to. She has the restraint of a child confronted by cake. And of course, they didn't seem to think that this was a problem or do anything about it before they found the body. They didn't think, yeah, maybe we shouldn't leave Ava with Ian alone. It doesn't, I mean, it enters their mind that this is a bad idea, but they don't really do anything to stop it. Yeah. It's only, They're just so passive. Yeah, the, it's what I said earlier. They're existing and life is happening to them. The world is happening to them, but they're not partaking in it. And in the end, when they're watching this other pair of lovers very passionately kiss, she asks Adam something and his response is, what choice do we have? And then they go and attack them. That's the thing. They seem to think they don't have choices, when they very clearly do. It's the but the, the their movie. choice their choice is to be the only lovers left alive. So there's one other thing that I thought was really interesting, and it was Mia Wasikowska. Um, 
She uses her natural accent in this movie. Most people don't know that she's Australian. Did you know she was Australian? Yes. Good. I think that this would be something you would know. This is on your side of the hemisphere. I know that. That's, I'm just hoping other people did. Because, like with every other time a New Zealander shows up, or an Australian shows up in America, no one ever knows. It's like I was watching the Cape and, oh, look, there's a guy who's playing an Australian playing an American. So, of course, when he has to go undercover, he just drops the accent. She's from Canberra, by the way. <laughs> and she was on All Saints. I don't know what that is. Australian soap opera. Okay. See, that sort of sums up everything. I don't know what that is when it comes to New Zealand. Like, do you have any idea what Shortland Street is? Well, you've explained it to me, but I've never watched it. Hospital soap opera. Gives us the immortal li- opening line of, You're not in Guatemala now, Dr. Ropita. That's amazing. Dr. Robita. Look, you, get, you already gave us Flight of the Concords and Lord, I think, you know, and Hobbits. We're good. Yeah, Dr. Ropita in that sentence is um, Timura Morrison, by the way. Do you know who that is? Yes. <laughs> okay, <laughs> good, because sometimes I do have to explain everything about Australia and New Zealand, including that they're not the same country. Not to you, but to other people. This one guy thought that made a joke about dingoes eating my baby when I had to go AFK for a while. I'm like, no, wrong country. It's like saying Toronto is part of America, of the US. No. Going back to the um, accent of um, Mia Wasikowska. Uh, Wasikowska? I don't know. It's interesting that we do see all these characters who aren't, like, Obviously, Ava and Adam and probably Eve. None of them are American. They're certainly not Moroccan. So again, it's that consuming of culture that is not their own. Eve sort of worships everything about Tangier, but still walks around as someone who can travel just about anywhere and not be the outsider, at least physically. She's a she's an attractive older white woman, which gives her a certain amount of status. Not as much status as Adam, but certainly a lot more than some other vampires might be experiencing. We don't really get to see her interacting with anyone other than than Marlowe and his companion slash student slash possible lover. Slash blood source. He's he's a man of all trades. You know, we see her walking through the the, the alleyways of Tangier and there are men who are, I think, trying to potentially pick her up or sell her something. Possibly the both? When when Adam comes to Tangier, he says he's got the stuff he needs, and then Adam very threateningly says he doesn't. The guy steps back. In those early sta- um, scenes in Tangier, where she's walking through town, I was expecting it to turn it into a case of the the white woman in the foreign brown land getting attacked by the locals thing. And then she turns out to you know be a vampire, they all die. Did you ever worry about that? Or think about that when you were, when you first saw those scenes? To an extent, because but it, that felt like that would that would create too much plot for the movie, and it's really not. A plot <laughs> Looking back, piece. it would create too much plot, but there was still that 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 icky feeling, wondering whether this was going to devolve into that. Because I mean, as we as we've talked about, there is a bit of a problem with the acknowledgement of people who aren't white in the in the movie, especially in the Detroit half, apart from Doctor Beatty. Um, there are a couple nurses. Yeah, but they don't the patients, actually have any speaking roles. Yeah, no one really... Because even you you go to Detroit and the music you take in, you don't take in Motown, you don't take in R&B, you don't take in rap. 
Motown does. You don't take in the music that was created there, and it's really implied that the music that Adam is creating has its roots in black music. It has its roots in Jimi Hendrix, so it has roots in soul and jazz. There is a mention of Motown in that he says, "You want to go look at the Motown, the outside of the Motown museum," and. Actually, that sort of sums it up. He's looking at the outside of the culture and not appreciating what's inside. Only what is immediately obvious that he can use to show off. Mind blown. Because <laughs> that's it, isn't it? It's all about appreciating the outside. He appreciates or doesn't appreciate the surface of what's going on. He won't look any further. He's only seeing yeah. the surface of humanity or what's the surface of a certain group of actions by humanity. Not the... He's seeing part of the big picture, but not anything on an individual scale, nor the whole big picture. Yeah. There are two people existing, rather than living, but they totally pretend they are living and that everyone else is existing. Hipsters? Oh my god, the hipsters? <laughs> I understand that the, the, what we see of Detroit is Detroit at night, when it's mostly abandoned and crumbling, and these buildings that used to stand for prosperity are now... You know, crumbling relics of their former selves. So you're not going to see a whole lot of people hanging around them at night necessarily. But I didn't believe that the streets would be entirely empty. Yeah, I mean, he I also really just didn't mis- believe that he wouldn't attend other clubs that were playing non-rock music. Yeah, the only characters that could potentially also be black are those those rock and roll zombies that are knocking on his door, which is just kind of weird in general. Just these fans showing up at his door and ringing the doorbell at night. And then just sort of yeah, we suggest that you just don't do that on principle. Yeah, it's. I mean, I've walked past Peter Jackson's house, but I just kept. I just looked, saw it needed a paint job, and kept walking. <laughs> but then again, it's right on the ocean, so of course it needs a paint job. I think because that's something I would have liked to have seen. All the people that um, we've spoken about, Adam and Myers, are mostly white dudes. Maybe Louis Armstrong and Mary Shelley. But there's absolutely no sign of interaction with him and, well, anyone non-white until he gets to Tangier. And it'd be interesting to know if he's one of those white guys who manages to live in a place that is mostly not white and yet still not have a single black friend or even some guy he knows that's black. Because there are some people that manage that. And, of course, being so isolated, probably man- he definitely manages to do it. Because only interactions are with, well, Ian. But even going out into the clubs and experimenting and learning music and stuff like that. He's not interacting at all. Oh, I figured out what we've forgotten. Mental health. Yes. <laughs> so there's one thing that we've sort of neglected to touch on in our discussion of everything else. is Well, we've, we touched on it briefly with um, the, the wooden bullet. But the status of mental health. Clearly, uh, Adam is having issues with depression, or at least some kind of um, mental health issue. Whether it's because he's meant to be that Byronic hero type, or if he actually does have a condition, he is actively contemplating suicide to the point of asking for a bullet that will kill him. It's, I, don't, I don't really think it's necessarily dealt with, because it's, it's going more for mood yeah. than anything else, even over, over character. Yeah, the, basically, um, Eve just sort of says, please tell me that you were going to use this to kill some other vampire. And yeah, then, we don't even get to see the sort of wider vampire world outside the three, the four that we meet. And so the um, the implication is that there are obviously other ones out there, and they, cause it, they, they bring trouble. Yeah, 
it's uh, just a very sli small slice of, in a microcosm of a, a vampire world. Because obviously Ava's probably hanging out with vampires in LA, because goodness knows that's where all the vampires hang out these days. But he's basically just told to get over it, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, it's just a case of, like, you need a change of scenery. Let's go out for a drink. Oh, well, we're going to have to leave the country now. Tangier is so pretty, and I'm here now. I mean, he's very clearly sitting up for a suicide. He's doing the giving away possessions thing. Maybe, okay, so he's giving more money than he needs to, and is not giving away the fancy guitars. But he's definitely giving something to Ian, which is always one of the warning signs, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's one of those things that are just... It's mental health, again, added to colour mood rather than an actual part of the plot. Which is one of the problems I have with a lot of, um, well, physical and mental health issues as they show up in fiction. He's the the mental health person... The person with the mental health issue, mostly depression, needs to be rescued or brought into the light or something like that. They, they just need the, the boyfriend or the girlfriend to save them. Or they just need a change of scene, as you can as you say. But unfortunately, most of us can't afford um, first-class tickets the next night to Tangier. This is something very much rooted in a... Classes? I, I would assume that they were upper-class in the, those days. Because it certainly would have allotted them the freedom to do things like hang around with Marlowe. Or well, collect the great literature of the world. Chill out with Byron. Chill out with Byron, yeah. he was. Well, I mean, he really was just hanging out with anyone, I feel. But he wasn't that picky. But this does allow <laughs> a lot of the freedom to be a very specific kind of romantic hero. And romantic heroes in that classical vein of literature, mental health therapy of any kind is not really an option. And I don't really think there are vampire therapists. Although that is a film I'd watch. I know, wouldn't it be fantastic? There's an idea. Any th psychologist or psychiatrist listening to us? <laughs> One, we're sorry. And two... Get on and write that, please. Vampire therapist or a therapist of vampires. But the, the wealth thing does come back because whenever they have a problem, they can just run to the next city, the next country. They literally run away from their... Well, they drive, then fly away from their problems, which is the death of Ian, and somebody's going to go, hey, wait, where did Ian go? They assume they ha that Ian has someone to care for him, which is interesting. Someone who will miss him, because it's not them. They certainly don't care when he dies. Would you recommend this film? I would recommend it to someone who's in a certain mood. Would that mood be languorous? <laughs> There's our word of the day. Seriously, we'll just make a, a blood-sucking feminist word of the day calendar and it's just languorous, languid every single day. Except for, the, except for September, which is just chagrin. Yes, I would recommend it. Um, obviously, take your time with it. Uh, don't go expecting big, epic vampire plot. <laughs> Do expect angst and brooding and Tom Hiddleston. Um, it's a mood piece. It's, it's a, a mood, mood piece, piece that happens to be aesthetically very pleasing. Yeah. On every level. Yeah. Don't come for the plot. Don't even come for the dialogue. Some of the best bits don't have anything being said or done. Do come if you want to learn about Jack White's childhood house, though. Uh, what about you? What are you? Would you recommend it? Or do you have any recommendations on how you should watch this? No, I definitely think it is a film to go with your mood. It's a must for Hiddleston fans for obvious reasons. It fits very well into the Jarmusch canon, or at least the Jarmusch films that I have seen. If you're looking to get into his films, I think this would be a really good starting place. It's certainly the most accessible of his films. Yeah, probably most likely to find that one at the um, video store. <laughs> that is true as well. I definitely recommend it. If nothing else, it's beautiful to look at, it's beautiful to listen to. The soundtrack to this thing is 
gorgeous. Jarmusch knows how to apply music to his films really effectively. Yeah. Um, but if you're interested in seeing that particular trope of the Byronic hero, the romantic loner, because it is so common, if you really want to see it with that particular edge of potential subversion slash analysis of the cultural appropriation within, give it a shot. I think that's something that it's a little more ambiguous. It's one that you're kind of invited to make up your own opinion about. So check it out and make up your own opinion. It's two hours long. It's available pretty easily, um, I believe, on Amazon streaming services. I watched it on Sky anytime if you're in the UK. I don't... It's on Netflix. Yeah, I have the DVD. Because people still buy DVDs. Yeah, I don't have a Blu-ray player. And one last thing, if you want to see a very Lee Pace-looking Tom Hiddleston, this is also your movie, because he really does look like Lee Pace in this one. I mean, if you want proof that Tom Hiddleston could pull off any terrible haircut... Then check out. I mean, we've all seen the Loki hair, which is bad enough, but here it, it's it's dry. Yeah, it's definitely it's Loki on a really bad day, and we know Loki's had some bad days. And I think that's us. Yeah. So once again, thank you for listening to us ramble on and on about anything and everything to do with vampires slash Tom Hiddleston and the occasional bite of feminism. Our next episode, I think, will be the Twilight episode. Who's looking forward to that one? The results of that podcast will surprise you. Yes. These two podcasters read Twilight. You won't believe what happened next. <laughs> uh, so if you think so, thank you for listening to this episode. Blood is the drug or only lovers left alive by Jim Jamush. If you aren't already subscribed to us on iTunes, please do. We, l- we would love for you to go through our back catalogue. Also come visit us on our website, bloodsuckingfeminist.com and chat with us either on Twitter at bloodsuckingfem, Tumblr, bloodsuckingfem.tumblr.com and or send us an email at fangmail at bloodsuckingfeminist.com. That is fangmail with a G because we are terrible punny people.